You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. Just this past week, it was published that there's not one state in the United States where a 40 hours a week, full-time, minimum wage worker um, can afford a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, And let that sink in for a minute. Not one state can someone working 40 hours a week at minimum wage. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 218 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our saying this week is the reversal of the last and the first, and our feature text is the last will be first and the first will be last, sayings Gospel Q 13 verse 30. Our companion texts are Matthew 20, 13 through 16, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Luke 13, 28 through 30, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and there will be places at the feast of the king in the kingdom of God, indeed there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. And the Gospel of Thomas four two through three: For many who are first will become last, and they will become a single one. Our saying this week is found in two separate settings in Matthew and Luke. Luke shares this saying in the context of of the sayings that we've looked at over the last two weeks. Matthew's context is different, and it comes at the end of of the parable of the landowner who who chose to pay all of that day's workers the same full day's wage regardless of how many hours they had worked. Again, this is Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went and he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, 
and the first will be last. So in Matthew, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's not a reversal of fortunes as it is uh, like in Luke 6, where the poor are blessed and the rich are cursed. It's not a revolution, again, that only proves to, to create a new hegemony with a new status quo and someone still dominating someone else and someone else being subjugated. It's not just flipping the domination triangle upside down with a new top and a new bottom. But this week's saying, uh, instead it describes a movement towards equality or, or equity. Everyone is paid based on their need, not whether they were able to find work. And in Jesus' story, those who came last, they didn't arrive late because they didn't want to work. Uh, but because it, this, it said no one hired us, they couldn't find any work. Um, but nonetheless, the, the landowner paid every worker the same wage regardless of how many hours they had labored. And it's payment that's rooted in compassion and, and not uh, 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 the dispassionate capitalism of, of some winning because others lose. In this parable, the owner's compassion was proportionate to every person's ability and to every person's need. And, 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 and that part of the saying seems to contrast with the rule that was quoted later in the New Testament, that the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, there's a tension between these two. But we often miss the word unwilling, I think, also in this statement. And, and we misquote the statement that those who don't work shouldn't eat. But that word is those who are un, unwilling to work should not eat. And youth, the elderly... Uh, people with disabilities, uh, those who simply can't find work, um, they're not being addressed by this saying in First Thessalonians. Those are people who would work if they could. Um, it's, it's that they can't. They, they're included in the story that Jesus told this week where people are paid, again, according to their need, and each contributes what they're able. And, and also, not every disability is visible. Some people are are too often grouped in with the unwilling to work when, in fact, uh, those who can work uh, are, are called to take care of those whose disability is not visible as well. Peter Kropotkin, uh, he describes in his book, A Mutual Aid, what we see among what he calls the fittest societies in the natural world, in nature. And he also, I think, unknowingly is describing the world that Jesus was also inviting us to create. But these are the words of Peter Kropotkin. While Darwin was chiefly using the term survival of the fittest in its narrowest sense for his own special purpose, he warned his followers against committing the error which he seems once to have committed himself of overrating its narrow meaning. In The Descent of Man, he gave some powerful pages to illustrate its proper wide sense. He pointed out how in numberless animal societies, the struggle between separate individuals for the means of existence disappears, how struggle is replaced by cooperation, and how the substitution results in the development of intellectual and moral faculties, which secure to the species the best conditions for survival. He intimated that in such cases, the fittest, are not the physically strongest, nor the cunningest, but those who learn to combine 
so as mutually to support each other, strong and weak alike, for the welfare of the community. Those communities, he wrote, which include the greatest number of the most sympathetic members, would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring. The term which originated with the narrow Mathusian, a con- conception of competition between each and all, thus lost its narrowness in the mind of the one who knew nature. So what he's basically saying is survival of the fittest doesn't mean the strongest necessarily. Some societies or some communities within nature, the fittest communities, are those not where the, the strong devour the weak or ignore the weak um, or, or just say to the weak, tough luck. Um, but but the fittest societies in nature that we find are, are those where the strong learn to take care of the weak. Um, everyone's taking care of. And as, as Kropotkin did years later in, in his volume here, Jesus described a society where members could learn to combine so as to mutually support each other, strong and weak alike, for the welfare of the community. And, and these are communities where those who are able, again, support and they care for those who are not able. And this week's saying also confronts us with something I think a little bit more familiar to to, to our society, an economic uh, uh, reality where an economy uh, uh, where, where there's more people who are willing to work than there is work available. Economies that keep workers desperate are structured that way by design. If you can have more workers out there than you have jobs for those workers, that's done by design. The supply of jobs is kept low so that workers don't get too picky or or organized into things like labor unions. And they don't ask for better wages. They're simply desperately happy to find any work. They're just happy to have a job. Like like the people in the Hebrew story of Joseph in Genesis 47-25, they they say, we'll sell ourselves into slavery if need be. We just need to eat or we just need to survive. And, And testifying before the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs in February 26 of 1997, Alan Greenspan described the, the, the state of, of job desperation in the U.S. He described that as a good for the economy rather than an evil. Um, it, it was good for the corporate elites, um, and it created an imbalance of power in their favor where the elites could control the working masses and, and expect greater passivity among the workers regarding low wages and and poor working conditions. In other words, they just put up with it. But uh, this is Alan Greenspan's testimony. He wrote, or he, he said, a typical restraint on compensation increases, and then he's talking about wages, has been evident for a few years now and appears to be mainly the consequence of greater worker insecurity. In 1991, at the bottom of the recession, a survey of workers at large firms by International Survey Research Corporation indicated that 25% feared being laid off. In 1996, the same survey organization found that 46% were fearful of a job layoff. The reluctance of workers to leave their jobs to seek other employment as the labor market tightened, has provided further evidence of such concern and has the tendency towards longer labor union contracts. For many decades, contracts rarely exceeded three years. Today, one can point to five- and six-year contracts. There's that passivity coming into play. Contracts that are commonly characterized by an emphasis on job security that involve only modest wage increases. The low level of work stoppages of recent years also attests to concern 
concern about job security. Thus, the willingness of workers in recent years to trade off smaller increases in wages for greater job security seems to be reasonably well documented. So, so you make lab- the laborer situation desperate enough, and, and they'll work 40 or more hours a week and still not be able to feed their families. All the while, they're not organizing. They're not. They're not getting together. They're not doing anything for higher wages, or or, or voicing their concern or their demands for higher wages. And they're just being content to to have one of the few jobs available. And just this past week, it was published that there's not one state in the United States where a forty hours a week full time minimum minimum wage worker um, can afford a two bedroom apartment. Uh, and let that sink in for a minute. Not one state can someone who's working 40 hours a week at minimum wage afford a two-bedroom apartment. What we have is people who are working full-time who can't even afford a place to sleep. And a one-bedroom apartment, some will say, we'll just have them downsized to a one-bedroom apartment. Well, a one-bedroom apartment can only be afforded in 12 counties that are located in Arizona Oregon and Washington states, and I'll, I'll put a link to the Washington Post article where those uh, where that study was conducted. But but the late Peter Gomes he calls us to see the unfairness of these types of rules, and and, and to make instead a world that's characterized by distributive justice among those who, in our story, are first or last in our economic status quo. Whether they're first or last, there's a distributive justice that should be. Uh, this should be marked by equity for everyone. In the scandalous gospel of, of Jesus, Gomes writes, it's interesting to note that those who most frequently call for fair play are those who are advantaged by the play as it currently is, and that only when the position of privilege is endangered are they likely to benefit from the change required to play by the rules. What if the rules are inherently unfair or simply wrong, or a greater good is to be accomplished by changing them? When the gospel says the last will be first and the first will be last, despite the fact that it is counterintuitive to our cultural presuppositions, it is invariably good news to those who are last, and at least problematic news to those who see themselves as first. This problem of perception is at the heart of a serious hearing of what Jesus has to say, and most people aren't smart enough to recognize that their immediate self-interest is served not so much by Jesus and his teaching as by the church and its preaching. Thus, it is no accident that although Jesus came preaching a disturbing and redistributive gospel, we do not preach what Jesus preached. Instead, we preach Jesus. Desmond Tutu is fond of the African proverb that says, when the white Christians came to Africa, they had the Bible and the Africans had the land. Then, he says, the Africans were given the Bible and the white Christians took the land. The legacy of worldwide colonialism is in many cases the pacification of a culture by the Bible and the misappropriation of that culture by those who use the Bible as an instrument of control. For the Bible is to be seen as an instrument of control rather than as one of liberation, is to do violence to the substance of the Bible. But it is reassuring to those in whose interest the status quo stands. Why? Because the risk of displacement and transformation is too great. If the first shall be last and the last first, what happens to all of us who have spent every waking hour devising stratagems either to remain first or to become first? And that's the Scandalous Gospel of Jesus, page 42 through 44. Since 1978, uh, the salaries of those at the top have risen over 937% 
while workers' wages have only increased about 10.2%. I'll give you a link to those statistics too by the labor studies. And the labor of the working class has, again, over these years been exploited to make those at the top incredibly wealthy. And it's in the name of efficiency and customer satisfaction. But, but there are now few protections against making the masses fully dependent on corporations for their survival. Um, one of the outcrops of or one of the fruits of, of, of making workers desperate is that eventually we just all become dependent on corporations. And those who know their labor history, they resonate deeply with this week's saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What would it look like uh, for us this week to work toward a world where those that are presently earning minimum wage can earn as much as CEOs and those who are now CEOs can earn the same as those who once earned only a minimum wage? I mean, as Jesus said, the last will be first and the first will be last. Again, that's Sayings Gospel Q 13, verse 30. Our heart group application this week, Jesus gave this week saying, in the context of first century Jewish economic disparity and, and, and exploitation. And John Ruskin, he addressed this saying in un, his book, Unto the Last, um, and, and his treatment was, this book was life-changing for Gandhi. Um, Gandhi translated Ruskin's work, but he also began experimenting with the principles of wage equity in India. And you can see Gandhi's autobiography, The Story of My Experiments with Truth, where he was doing that with his printing press and with the farm. Um, but not all disparities are purely economic. There are other types of disparities uh, too, like disparities of resources and, and power, um, especially among people of different genders or different races, different sexes, different heritages, um, different religions. We're seeing that today. Uh, different sexualities, ge different gender expressions. And these are just to name a few. So this week, number one, can you imagine a world where those who are presently last experience the same equity as those who are presently first and, and, and vice versa? And make a list of those that you feel are presently treated as first in today's community, today's culture, and those who are treated as last. The number two, brainstorm together as a group uh, practices that your heart group itself can engage in to foster a community that's characterized by equity. How can you as a group reach out to and connect with those within your group as well as uh, outside of your heart group too to, to work towards equity? And then number three, how can your heart group uh, put things right where you can? Make that list. Where, what, what can you do to put things right? And then how can you also speak truth to those who are in power um, who have the ability to make things right for others that you don't have the ability to do. But how can you make those who, who can change things uncomfortable until they do change things? And then pick an item from, from your lists and this week put it into, into practice. But for all of you listening, thanks for checking in with us this week. Wherever this finds you, keep living in love, uh, survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, transformation, and thriving. And this week too, I want to let you know about a new way that you can participate 
in the RHM community. It's our 525-1 project. And beginning this August, we'll begin hosting face-to-face weekend events all across the nation. And we're really excited about this new direction we're moving in. You can find out more all about it, uh, the, uh, this new project that we're doing. You can find it at renewedheartministries.com forward slash news forward slash 525 one. And, uh, or you can just go to the link in the podcast or in the east side this week, but it's renewedheartministries.com forward slash news forward slash 525 one. And there you can find out why we're making this change. Um, you, you can also have us come to your area, and you can find out how you can join in to assist us in making these new events happen. And if you're new to Renewed Heart Ministries, we're a not-for-profit group that's informed by the sayings and teachings of the historical Jewish Jesus of Nazareth, and, and we're passionate about centering our values and our ethics and the experiences of those on the undersides and margins of our societies. And you can find out more about us by going to renewedheartministries.com and clicking on Who is uh, RHM. And for all of those out there who are supporting our work, thank you. Um, we couldn't exist without you, and together we really are making a difference. And I'm so glad you're engaging this work with us, this work of making the world a, a safe, just, compassionate home uh, for all of us. Remember, I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.